you're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Lane Wagner, a backend engineer and founder of Boot.dev, an in-depth online course to help people get into backend web development using Python and Go. We talk about language design decisions in Go, which Lane is very familiar with, and also about differences in functional and imperative languages, including the age-old question of why functional programming isn't as popular as imperative languages. And now, Go and functional programming. All right, Lane, thanks for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So you are someone who is quite familiar with using Go in production, like in anger. You're, you're an experienced Go developer. <laughs> and I've got a, a series of questions about Go because I find a lot of Go's design really interesting and potentially good sources of inspiration for things we could do in Rock. But I don't have any personal experience with it. So I got a couple of questions written down, <laughs> one of which is so. I know that Go does tabs for indentation, like GoFumped is like famously not configurable, which I love. Rock formats the same way, no configuration options. Perfect. That's yeah. the way to go. <laughs> uh, Elm formats the same way. It's, it's how it ought to be. Small tangent, I always thought it was really strange that some of the other formatters, like notably Prettier, for example, don't have that. Like they do have configuration options. And that mm-hmm. to me is like missing like the number one selling point of a formatter. Completely agree. Is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like why bother at that point? Prettier kind um, of started on that it started down that path. It's kind of like ESLint, except let's like ship it with all the configuration. But then just over time, they kept adding more and more. <laughs> yeah. But like, you got to say no. Otherwise, otherwise the debates yeah, yeah. will just metastasize into the community. Anyway, so Go does tabs for indentation. And mm-hmm. I don't know of any other languages that have like a major formatter that do that. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, like how people feel about that, because we were talking about doing the same thing in Rock. And one of the questions that came up is things around like, well, on GitHub, they default to eight uh, spaces per tab. And like you can configure right. that now. But it's like, is that really weird? Is that going to look like too much indentation? Do people ever have problems with copying and pasting and like weird things happen? Or is this just totally a non-issue? And everyone's just like, yeah, it's fine. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. So like fundamentally, this is basically like a tabs versus spaces question, right? (laughs) I guess. And I'm completely on team tabs at this point. I see historical reasons. Like to me, it seems that the only arguments for spaces are like historical. (laughs) There's like historical reasons for it. For example, like working in an editor that's it that doesn't make it easy to format the size of a tab. Right. Like I've never had that be a problem for me over the last decade. GitHub does a really good job of 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 dealing with source code. And and most Go developers, myself included, I believe show their tabs at four spaces. Eight spaces is pretty insane. Uh, like the equivalents, <laughs> right? Of but like to, to me, the, the idea of tabs is just so much more flexible because you're expressing the idea of indentation. Yeah. Right. Like I want an indentation here rather than I want, you know, two or four or eight spaces. And it leaves it up to the viewer to decide how big they want that thing to be. From like first principles and a a belief in the idea of tooling getting better over time, to me, tabs does feel like the right answer. Yeah, so that was, I mean, I I was actually kind of surprised because I I brought up the topic and we'd always use spaces for indentation just because currently today the parser doesn't accept tab characters. But the idea was like, hey, you know, we don't have to do it this way. This is what Elm format did. So, you know, should we talk about it at least? And surprisingly, the the, the way the conversation ended up was most people were like, I, I thought it was weird that Rock didn't use tabs for this, even though that was kind of something that we inherited from Elm. And I was surprised by that in part because one of the arguments that I've heard against using tabs for indentation is that if the whole point of a formatter with no configuration is to make it so everybody's seeing the same thing, well, now some people are seeing things shifted over a little more, a little bit less. And 
I guess in theory that could make the alignment look weird on some things, but of course the argument goes like you shouldn't use tabs for alignment. You should use spaces for alignment and only use tabs for indentation. And if you're doing that, then probably things are going to line up in, a, in sort of a normal way or not. I feel like the premise there is a little is is bad. <laughs> I okay. think the, the premise of like we're going to see the same thing is actually incorrect. Okay. I think the premise should be we're all going to end up with the same thing checked in to Git, right? Like the way we represent the abstract syntax tree of the language in Git, like once we take the concepts and put them into text form, they should be checked into Git in an identical way, but that doesn't necessarily mean they look the same. Partly be like, this is a good example of like, you know, tab width being able to change on your screen without the textual representation changing because of a tab character, but also things like syntax highlighting, right? Like those things also visually are distinct between developers, but like we can still check in the same thing to get. That's a fair point. Yeah. And I, I guess I can see an argument for like, you know, the main thing that it's doing here is preventing people from spending time arguing about stylistic things that should just be a convention. and whether or not individuals are adjusting their tab width, you still prevented the argument. So right, <laughs> but like certain things, nobody actually argues about, right? Like, like for example, syntax highlighting, right, or like the theme of your editor. Because as long as yeah. the central thing that we're all working off of is the same, like nobody actually cares what their teammates use as right. far as you know, colors. That's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So so that's something that like in the Go community, everyone's just like, yeah, it's fine. Like nobody complains about like the tab based indentation or so i've definitely seen people come from like for example the python community and complain about it which is like hilarious to me because python famously just has like the worst indentation problems ever (laughs) i won't say that nobody complains about it but i will say i know very few fans of go that see it as one of the problems of the language okay okay any that's even when you have like a mixed code base of like go and javascript and like a javascript using prettier which i believe doesn't use tabs for indentation by default i think they use two spaces that's a good question. To be honest, big disclosure, like most of my career has been in backend development. So I've only worked on a couple of code bases, especially, and it's actually been more recent where Go is being used in more of like a monolithic style. So like rather than just building a JSON API or like a service that deals with data, actually like serving HTML, CSS, JavaScript, doing dynamic rendering, like I've done less of that. And so maybe the considerations change a little bit, but we did recently migrate the boot dev code base to a mono repo and shoved our front end and our back end into the same repository. But it was pretty simple. Just, I mean, we're just still using prettier for all of the JavaScript stuff and go thump for the go stuff. So like, there's no, there's no conflicts, but at the same time, like they're very distinct directories. If we were doing like dynamic rendering and templating, I just don't know how painful it would be yet. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. So another question I had, it was around, Go modules, which I always get a little bit confused when I start talking about this because <laughs> what I think of is modules and packages are kind of reversed in Go. Like the thing that Go calls packages, what I usually think of as modules. Yeah. And what, <laughs> like a JavaScript but, module is a Go package, right? Yeah, right. Regardless, so Go's system for, let's call them libraries, distributing libraries and, and resolving sure, libraries yeah. and stuff. So the new system for that, which is, I believe, called Go modules, uses mm-hmm. uh, this this thing called minimum version selection, which I've read about and seems really cool. I don't know. Is that something that people talk about in the Go community is minimum version selection? Is everyone just like, I don't know, it's just versions. That's how they work. You're going to have to educate me a little bit. I'm very okay, familiar wow. with like how version control works in Go, but what exactly are you referring to when you say minimum version selection? <laughs> I might so, have to read the um, article. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there's a series of blog posts about it, about how this was kind of like the design they came up with for how Go resolves version ranges and like the reasoning behind it, basically. And I thought it was really compelling reasoning. The short version is that the way that it works is you have, uh, let's say I have two different modules and they depend on two other different modules. And I'm going to say, okay, these two have a shared sort of transitive dependency that I'm not using, but both of them are using. How do mm -hmm. we decide what version to give that? And the answer in Go is we're going to give it the lowest version number that that satisfies the, sort of the highest that either of them have. Um, whereas, for example, some other languages will say, well, all your transitive dependencies, we're going to go check and see whatever the latest version is. We'll give it the latest, whatever that is. And so we have to check all Got the time it. on every build or every installation. Go is like, no, we always default to the lowest and you can manually upgrade that if you want. It seems really great. It, it seems like it makes a lot of sense, like the reasoning behind it. But I'm kind of curious how that's gone in practice. Is everyone just like, cool, this is awesome. Or are there like any pain points that I wouldn't have thought of <laughs> in practice? Or I wish I could give a more sophisticated answer. I'm going to actually have to go read. I've got the article um, by Russ Cox pulled up in front of me now. I'm going to have to go read up on it. The thing in Go that I would say about dependencies in general, like when you're working on a Go code base, one of the things you'll immediately notice that is distinct from a language like JavaScript is just a lack of dependencies. So okay, yeah. uh, every Go project I've worked on, I mean, we check the vendor folder for the most part into source control. That's very common practice in Go, typically sure. because the vendor folder is quite small. And part of the reason for that is it's a rich, heavy use of the standard library, right? Yeah. So dependencies just, when you have very few dependencies, you run into very few dependency problems. <laughs> and that's really like the ethos of the Go community. When you do a lot of Go in practice, it becomes apparent why having not so many dependencies is a big deal. But yeah, like, I guess what I would just say is, you know, having written Go professionally for seven years at the application level, at least, I have not ever ran into any serious problems with transitive dependencies. Okay. And I guess it's not something that people complain about either in the Go community. Yeah. So like, I, I haven't read the article, so I can't speak to the details, but I sure, can sure. say I have run into it in JavaScript quite a few times. But whether that's because of minimal version selection or just because I have a, a node modules folder that could blot out the sun like I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you uh which is actually the cause yeah so i guess the difference would be in javascript you have automatically like the, the default is that you get the latest version of transitive dependencies and then you have a lock file which kind of locks it down and says i want these exact versions whereas in go it's like we're not getting you the latest version we're going to look at what the latest version is we're going to find the, the the lowest version that like the bare minimum that will work with all of your things you know requirements yeah, and, okay, so I will then, say one more yeah. thing then about this is that one thing that will throw a lot of people coming in to Go from other languages is like major versions are a much bigger deal in Go than they are in other programming languages. Because like in JavaScript, if you want to take ESLint from six to seven, you like just run, you know, NPM upgrade or whatever the yeah. package that you want to upgrade, and it will jump major versions for you. You'll go from six right. to seven to eight. And it sounds like the defaults are fine with just upgrading you to the latest. Um, in Go, when you cross major version boundaries, not only do you have to run like an update command on the CLI, but you also yeah. have to change all of your import paths. So everywhere that that's imported, now you're doing like slash v2, slash v3. And the reasoning is that Go as a language is basically all in on Git and all in on semantic versioning. So the assumption is if you're up, if you're actually upgrading major versions, you're introducing a lot of breaking changes. 
And so we want you to go take care of those explicitly rather than just like having a bunch of stuff in your code break. I had heard about that, but I didn't quite realize the implication of it. So I'm guessing that that's something that people complain about. At least some people complain about. (laughs) I've complained about it. And there are like ways to get around it. So let me put it this way. I think it's actually an amazing system for when you want to publish like third party packages to GitHub for use by other people. But it's a giant pain in the butt when you are trying to publish packages like for your like internal company use, for example, within your organization, (laughs) because it's like oftentimes when you're working in a small team and you're just publishing libraries for consumption by your own application, like lines aren't drawn in the best possible ways, right? You're kind of moving fast and just making breaking changes all the time. It's like, what are we going to be like V 73 and updating (laughs) all of our, import paths all the time. So there is a way to get around it by just keeping your app at like V0 always. And that's usually the solution for when you're doing this sort of like internal work. But it, it can be a little heavy handed in some in some cases. Okay, so so V0 is like a special version that says all bets are off something like that or? I'd have to look it up again. So I think Man, if I remember right, it's actually just a convention because the thing is, okay. if you stay within a major version, so like V0 is a major version, right? Yeah. And so if you just like always stay in V0, then you'll never have to do this path upgrading thing, right? It's like you didn't have oh, to make I any see. change to the way the tooling works for that to work. But by being at Z- V0, you're also kind of conventionally signaling that like we're just making breaking changes all the time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And <got> so <laughs> if that's what you're doing, like my recommendation is just stay in V0 and, and roll that way. Totally makes sense. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that's that's really good to know. So do people do, I, I guess, like I had another question about sort of overrides and saying like, you know, I know that this package says it depends on this, but actually I want you to substitute this other thing. I know there's some mechanism in Go mm-hmm. for, for things of that nature. Do those get used very often or like what are they, if so, what do they get used for? So the only mechanism I've used that sounds like what you're describing is to like alias a package on like your local file system. So normally in Go, when you bring in dependencies, you're using a path that looks something that's like a remote URL. So like github.com slash wags lane slash go rabbit MQ, right? That's like this, this rabbit client that I that I maintain. And so when you're working inside of that module and you're making like you want updates, the Go tooling will like reach directly out to GitHub and grab the source code, <laughs> right? Um, that's that's another unique thing about the way Go deals with dependencies is like we're downloading the source. We're not like downloading some built package from a central server like NPM. Like we're just going straight to the repo and pulling it. And so if you want to like do local development rather than like go through that whole cycle of like pushing something up to Git and pulling it down, then you could like alias that to a local file path. I've done that and I've only done it occasionally, like very occasionally, and I've only done it in local development. Okay, got it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned that um, it's culturally common to have like a vendor folder where you check in all of your dependencies. And I've heard an argument specifically from game developers that that's like the right way to view dependencies because now everybody has it. Everybody has the same version. If, you know, Git or GitHub is like, yeah, I guess Git can't go down. If GitHub goes down, it's it's fine. It's like, okay, 
whatever. Like we can't, we can't do check-ins. We can't do pull requests or whatever, but like right. everybody can still program. It's not like you can't go, you know, get dependencies or anything like that. Cause you got them in source control. CI is super fast. That's another big one is when you do your CI or your CD up on like GitHub actions, for example, you don't have to do like an NPM install where you're grabbing crap from all these different remote sources. Yeah, it's wild to me how long NPM install takes as, as an aside. <laughs> like my only interaction with NPM was like we'd have use it to install command line apps. That was, that was about it. Yeah. And so now like I'm working at a new company that that uses TypeScript on the back end and in the process of introducing Rock with a long term goal of migrating from TypeScript to Rock. But just NPM install. I mean, I've also seen like, OK, well, let's switch from NPM to PNPM. Because a, a major selling point is the installation process is faster. And then there's like, okay, I've heard Bun also has a very fast installation process. And it's weird to me that that's something that is like competed on. Because I'm used to, <laughs> yeah. like Elm doesn't even have an install button. It's just like we just, next time you use a package, we download it and put it in the cache. And that's the end of it. You just, you don't need yeah. to, <laughs> you don't need to mess with that. I don't know how, like why, I, I'm assuming it's like kind of some legacy reasons. And I, I haven't dug into the like, why is it that NPM install takes so incredibly long when it seems like it should be something that only happens when you install a new dependency as opposed to anyway? Yeah, for some reason, it's <laughs> I don't know either, but slow. I do know it's a lot of files and yeah. I do know that you're in you're bringing them down from a remote source every time. And like most like CI runners are smart enough. You can configure them to do caching, but like the irony of that to me is now you're dealing with cache invalidation, which is like an even harder problem <laughs> than just like checking something into a vendor folder. Uh, so, right. True. Yeah. So I, I can definitely see the appeal of that. Okay. So random other question, quick side question. I'm kind of curious how you see Go's popularity. Like, would you say Go is like a mainstream language or a popular language or a niche language? Or like, how do you, how do you think about that as like a member of the Go community? When I first got involved in Go, it was definitely a niche language. Okay. So I first started learning it in like 2015, 2016. Uh-huh. Now it's it's definitely grown. And I yeah. would argue really, especially in like the last 18 months, at least in like the YouTube and Twitter circle that I exist within, it's grown uh-huh. quite quickly. Like people are pretty yeah. excited about it. A lot of a lot of big changes went in over the last couple of years that I think opened Go up to a much wider audience. In particular, Go modules was a big one. Um yeah updating the way dependencies were handled. Um, there were some there were some challenges before. And then also getting generics into the language oh, made yeah, a big yeah. difference for a lot of people. I still think the irony is that it hasn't actually changed how you write application level code all that much. Yeah. Which is where most of the growth comes from anyways, right? Like once you get developers <laughs> sure. to actually build a- uh, applications in the language, like that's that's where a lot of the growth is. And you don't need generics nearly as often at the application level as you do at like the library level but yeah it's it's growing a lot i don't i don't what, what are we calling mainstream like top five top six or like top 10 top 20 i mean honestly like that's kind of why i asked it that way is i think it means different things to different people so i'm just kind of curious what you you know how, how you think about it personally i think it's entering the mainstream and it depends on what industries you're looking at. Like if you looked at game development, for example, it's not a mainstream language. Well, sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and if you look at, at web like, development, I mean, that's kind of what it's for, right? It's like servers. <laughs> yeah. So for servers, let's talk servers. I actually think it has, it has become one of the smallest mainstream languages for sure. Both for building like JSON APIs for doing web servers now. Like, so like caddy is a popular web server that's been growing really quickly that like competes with essentially like Nginx and Apache. 
Um, oh, wow. And it's written in Go. And it's a really cool project. And so anything anything backend related, I think it's definitely entering the mainstream. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's kind of my impression too, is I like the way you phrase that is like, it's it's one of the smallest mainstream languages. Like I definitely think of Go as mainstream. I don't think I would have like 10 years ago, for example, it was yeah. even out 10 years ago. Yeah, it was 2013. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. I think it was open source 20, 2009, if I remember right. Nine or 11. That would have been. I get them mixed up. Yeah. At any rate, like, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's definitely not in the like java python javascript tier of of, like (laughs) super popular languages but but yeah i think of it as mainstream if someone's like oh i'm using go people are like "Ooh, how exotic you know they're like oh okay that's that's one of the that's one of the normal options yeah like when you go to deploy on like aws or gcp and you're using one of their managed services where they have you like select which language you want to use it's always there (laughs) and it's like you know usually only one of like between five and 10 languages. So the fact that yeah. it's always there is a is a pretty big deal. Yeah. You mentioned generics coming out. This might sound weird coming as someone who doesn't use the language, but when I saw the announcement, I was actually personally a little bit sad. That was something that I admired about Go from the perspective of, hey, we're not going to overcomplicate this language. I'm not saying generics are an overcomplication. It sounds like from what I've heard, the design they came up with like fits with the language really well. But just on principle, I always liked thinking about like, so many languages just accumulate more and more cruft over the years. And just the fact that everybody was like, LOL, go, no generics. And then the Go team was like, well, we don't have a good design for them, so we're not <laughs> going to overcomplicate the language. That's how it is. I feel like JavaScript like would have added a much, probably much worse and more complicated version of generics to Go if they were in charge, like if, if the ECMAScript, <laughs> you know, like TC39 was in charge five years earlier than that. And it probably wouldn't have been as good as what they ended up with. But when I first heard about it, I was like, ah, that was just such a, a sterling example. This is example how languages like, die. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not, I mean, like maybe there was a risk there, of course, but, but it was more just like, now I don't have that sort of example to sort of go to of like, this is what it looks like when you insist on simplicity and like, you know, you just stand on like, no, we are not going to, you know, jam in something just because a lot of people are asking for it. If we think it's going to make the language worse, because Every language that ended up being really overcomplicated never set out. They always just incrementally said yes and yes and yes and just addressed one pain point at a time until they ended up looking around and being like, how did we get here? <laughs> so let me like when, when generics were first like being talked about, I was pretty resistant and the Go community at large was pretty resistant. And that's part of the reason it took so long. But I've come around on generics. I think it was a good addition because, let me back up a little bit. As an application level developer in Go, I still rarely use generics. And that's a lot of the reason that I was resistant to them in the first place. I'm like, "Ah, I never use these things. Like, Like, I'm taking data from a database, converting it into some structure in memory, and sending it over the wire. Explain to me why I would need a generic to do that, right? Like that sounds yeah. like <laughs> overcomplicating the situation. But there's like it, it. You just have to go outside your domain a little to see that there actually are a lot of use cases, and that five years ago, the way we solved that in Go was through code generation. Which, like, not to say there's never a good use case for code generation, but it certainly has its drawbacks, especially when all you're doing is like, especially when you're generating code within your own language like usually you're generating from like some dsl into some other language Uh, yeah Uh, like there's a necessary compile step there so i've come around on generics but i will say one thing about this like idea of cruft building up over time 
first, like Go was super slow to add them. And the Go team remains extremely slow to add new features. There's lots of like updates and changes and like performance improvements and that kind of stuff going on. But like API level changes, there's still very few of those happening. But to me, it's it's not necessarily that a language adds tons of features. That's the inherent problem. I think the inherent problem is when a language adds many different ways to accomplish the same thing. So to me, generics really added a way to do a thing that you just couldn't do before without like hacking your way into the solution. And so now we have like one good way to do that thing. Not to say there's there's no instances in the Go programming language of, you know, there being two ways to do a thing. But like when I look at Python or JavaScript or Java or like languages that have been around for a long time, it's like you've got the old way to do it and you've got the new way to do it, right? Like we don't use var anymore in JavaScript. We use let and const. We don't use dot then anymore. We use async await. And to me, that's the real problem is when you're just adding more and more new ways to do a thing. Even if they're slightly better, it comes at a cost of just now we have 17 different ways to do it. And every developer that we onboard to the language eventually has to come up to speed on all that legacy stuff just because they're going to run into it. That's a great point. And you can't take it out without breaking right. all the old code bases either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And even if you did take it out, developers will still be working on old code bases that haven't migrated yet. So like, it's not like right. you just solved the problem. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think I agree with you. And that is the major problem that languages end up with. Although to be fair, I have seen other languages that, and maybe this is a special case of having multiple ways to do the same thing. But I've I've also seen languages, which shall not be named, that just add a lot of features. Like it's it, um the term I've heard is like a kitchen sink language where they just they just got everything. They got, you know, a million different tools in the toolbox. And there's definitely at some point gotta be multiple ways to do a given thing. But it's not like it was because they like, oh, we found a slightly better way to do this. Let's add that on. It's more just like they've always had this kind of design philosophy of just more tools is better. The more we can give you, the better. And yeah, there's, there's a downside. Some job to that. security there. Like <laughs> <laughs> mastering C takes a lot longer than mastering Go. I mean, I said I wasn't <laughs> going to name any, so <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it for you. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I okay. So, so another random question that I had about Go is: so I know that Go has it's it's unusual among. I'm going to say mainstream languages in that the stack grows automatically. Like if you run out of stack space, it's just going to allocate some more off the, off the heap or the, you know, the, the processes address space. And I was kind of curious about like, well, what happens when you write a recursive function that never terminates? So you're just going to get a stack overflow, but it, it has to run all the way out of like, you know, however many gigabytes of memory you have. And apparently at least according to chat GPT, there's some artificial cap put on it, like one gigabyte or something. So it, it sort of won't, you know, run out of it in, in practice. You'll still get a stack overflow long before you completely run out of memory. But I was kind of curious if that's, have there been any downsides to that in practice that you've seen? Or is it just like, no, it's great. We have, you know, functionally, you know, enormous stack sizes and everybody loves it and that's it. So we do have big, we do, we do have big stacks and go. Uh, I don't want to downplay the size of our stacks. Uh, <laughs> the interesting thing about Go, like working in Go a lot, and, and to be honest, it's been a while since I've worked in C++. I really did only a bit of C++ at my first job and C, and then in school. It's been a long time. And obviously those are the languages where you have to like manually think about this sort of stuff. In Go, yeah, in Go, I find that in practice, and I've worked on some pretty big systems with a lot of traffic, 
you mostly worry about memory as like a more amorphous thing. Like how much memory does the, and keep in mind, I've kind of worked in like microservices, right? And Docker and Kubernetes. So like what I'm always thinking about is, okay, my pod has four gigs of memory. Let's not go over that limit. It's usually not the stack specifically running out, right? In fact, it usually is the heap because we're like allocating something large in memory that we're doing like calculations against, like maybe some big map that we're loading into memory, right? And then and then, and then then checking against over and over again. I have not run into specific stack overflow problems. I've had a lot of out-of-memory problems in Go. And Usually the approach is go ships with a couple really interesting tools if you want to like dive into this stuff, which is like pprof is like the go profiler for memory and CPU. And it has tooling built into the tool chain and you can like profile your program and see where all the memory is getting allocated and you get like a nice PDF output. It's pretty cool. That's usually the problem. When you're thinking about stack and heap in go, it's it's usually pretty simple. It's like if I'm using a pointer and passing it around between functions, that goes on the heap <laughs> and like everything else goes on the stack. And the caveat I want to, to point out, because again, this is like fairly unique to Go programming, is oftentimes people come into Go with like their experience in Java or C or whatever. And they think like, I'll use pointers because pointers will be faster because I'm not copying memory. But as John Bodner points out in his book, um, I just had him on my podcast, the, the Backend Banter podcast, and he was talking about this. Um, Pointer is actually going to be the slower option usually in Go for the simple reason that you're going to the heap at all. You can have a big fat struct in Go and even though it gets copied from time to time, because it's on the stack, it's still your faster option. Yeah, because it's probably still in cache much more often. Yeah, that I, I guess the general rule of like, <laughs> don't put don't allocate on the heap if you can avoid it if you want good performance yeah it makes sense that it would be true and go just like it is in like c and rust and, and all the others yeah that's cool i i wonder about like speaking of pointers i kind of was surprised to see that go has like a first class concept of a pointer because i remember so like early on in my career i did java stuff and later on in my career i did rust stuff and uh something that both of those two languages have in common is that they're both pretty big, complicated languages. And they also have like all the different number types and they also have a first class concept of pointers. Um, oh, sorry, Java Java does not rather. Uh, Rust does and then Java just has references. Whereas like C has pointers, C++ has pointers. And I was kind of surprised because Go's reputation, at least from my perspective, is a language that is pretty easy to learn. It's like not something where people are like, oh man, Go, the learning curve. That's one of the downsides. You know, I never hear that. And yet Go has like, all the different like signed, I think it has signed and unsigned integers. Do I remember that right? Yeah. And it has like, you know, a bunch of different sizes of them. And then uh, like, including the one that I think of as U size from Rust, but I forget what goes calls something else, but it's like the one that's like the number of bits that your system is, is like yeah, the size yeah. of the integer. So there's like um, int and it will default to either int 64 or int 32, depending on your architecture. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, and so it's got all that and then, but it's, and it's even also got pointers. Um, mm-hmm. And yet people find it easy to learn, which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's sort of like distills down, like why would people say that Java is harder than Go? Probably not for that reason, because Java's got all that right. stuff too. Why would people say that? Right, I hope people are saying that Rust is harder to learn than Go, because I think that's about as objective a fact as you can state. But, it, you know, <laughs> uh, like like why specifically? And and I think, again, it's not the, the, the numbers. It's not the the pointers. It's the other stuff. So I've, I've taught Go a lot. Obviously, boot dev is a platform for learning backend engineering, and we, we teach Python and Go. And Go is really the language that we teach the backend specific stuff in. And I found that pointers 
and channels are by far the hardest concepts for new students. And channels, not even because a channel is a hard concept inherently, because it's really just a thread-safe queue. It's it's that when you're doing interesting stuff with channels, your program is naturally complex. Because why else would you be bringing channels in uh, unless you have like some crazy concurrency stuff going on? So I guess the actually the fair thing is to say you're probably learning concurrency for the first time, and that's the hard part. And actually, <laughs> yeah. channels make it a lot easier to do the hard thing. It's just that if you're coming from a language like if you're a front-end developer or you're coming from a language like Python or Ruby, you maybe just haven't really done much with concurrency yet. So that tends to happen. On the int, uint, int64 stuff, just really quickly, I want to point out that it's, uh, you in Go, it is very conventional to only use specific sizes of stuff if you really need it. So like, you'll almost always just be using a float64, which is like the, I call it the default uh, size for a float, or an int, if you just like kind of need an int. Uh, and the reason for that is if you use a different size, like say you do like a, a uint eight or something, and then you want to take that number and use it in a function that accepts an int, you have to like explicitly typecast it around. And so if you're trying to always like nickel and dime the amount of memory you're going to use, you just end up with a ton of typecasting. And in my experience, that's generally not worth it. So there are cases where I go, okay, I know this is never going to be a negative number. And so for more like for type safety reasons, I'm going to make it a uint just so I don't accidentally try to like make it a negative number. Those are cases where I do use like special types occasionally. But if I'm not too concerned about it, I I recommend people just sticking to kind of that aliased version of, you know, an integer, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that example of um of channels and like the thing that's actually hard is that you're learning hard concurrency problems, not necessarily channels themselves. I'm reminded of that distinction between that and things that are sort of hard because that's like how it's done in this language and it's maybe unfamiliar to people or they're being exposed to something they didn't realize was a thing like like pointers. Because so so rock is a purely functional programming language and I, I'm working on this like article that I need to <laughs> finish someday. But a good example of this, I think, in functional languages is in an imperative language, you have something like a while loop or a for loop. And a lot of people, and it's sort of this, um, it can be used for a lot of different things. Like there's there's kind of a general pattern to it, but it's something that people reach for all the time, or at least uh, if not a for loop, then maybe it's like a for each, which is like, let's be honest, a for loop with different syntax. Like I, as a side, like it's weird to me when people are like, oh, for each versus four. That's like, <laughs> that's like a big style. I'm like, they're the same thing. I mean, I guess, I guess if your language doesn't have like four in syntax and you, you know, you have to use I've like, I've never I looked at the internals, but doesn't for like, I would assume, does for each just have a for loop inside of the. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it does. Yeah, <laughs> right? of course. Like, I mean, it's just <laughs> yeah. imperative under the hood instead. Right. Yeah. But anyway, but like in a purely functional language, it's like you have map and you have filter and, and things like that. And then ultimately you have like fold or reduce or walk or whatever it's called in your particular language of choice. And then you have recursion and that's kind of it. You don't have like, so there's this kind of hierarchy of like, well, if, if you can use map, use map because that's going to be the simplest and it's going to, your code's going to look the nicest. If you can't use map to solve this problem, then use, you know, map plus filter or like a uh, flat map or uh, different names of these things. And then if you can't use that, then you go all the way up to fold or, or walk or reduce uh, whatever it's called in your language. And if you can't use that, you go all the way up to, you know, and then recursion is kind of the, the equivalent of like the while loop where it's like, now you can do anything, but it's, 
You're doing uh, it from scratch a while at that point. Loop. Yeah. Yeah, but unlike and also it might not terminate. <laughs> but but unlike a while loop, I think it's a lot harder to teach recursion than it is while loops. So and for loops for that matter. And so a difference between purely functional languages and let's say an imperative language that happens to also have, you know, map and filter and whatnot, like they're, where, the, where they're just sort of like convenience functions, the learning path is a bit different because if you've got a for loop, you can just be like, look, here's a for loop. You can use this for everything. And then later you can be like, also, if you want, here's, here's map. That's like, look, this is code's a little cleaner. And like, oh, look, here's filter. Here's flat map. I'm like, look, these are, these are ways that you can more concisely express your thing. And they have these benefits. Whereas in the functional style, I don't think you want to start with teaching. Here's recursion. And then, and then later on, we'll teach, we'll work our way up to map. I think that's backwards. It's like you want to teach the yeah. convenient functions first because they're easier than the most powerful thing that you almost never use in practice, you know? <laughs> and so going back to like, you know, uh, channels and, and pointers, I think that's an example. Like that's, that's not a channels thing where that's just like, it's like, this is something that depending on how you teach it is harder because of like the language design, not necessarily because like, the problem is innately hard. It's like, it's, it's actually not hard. It's, it's more just that like thinking about it in that way seems to be harder for most people. I certainly was for me when I was learning it for the first time. I, I think I lost the analogy. I think I'm, I'm okay, probably sure. just so, being dumb. So like I followed everything about functional programming and how, you know, you might want to start with map and then do recursion later with, with channels and concurrency. What's the ordering you're, you're saying might, might okay, be the better. So, so let me, let me try to express it a different way. So at least in rock, and, and I think this is true of most, but not all functional languages. If I write a recursive function that is tail recursive, it's mm-hmm. going to compile to the same thing a while loop compiles to. Like the CPU is right. doing the same stuff. The memory is doing the same stuff. And that's kind of the point is, is like you use that technique when that's what you want. <laughs> you want the CPU right. to do that same thing that a while loop does. So it's not like what you're doing is inherently hard. Like if you have while loop syntax, it's easy to teach. If you have recursion, it's harder to teach. So to me, that's different than the channels analogy. Where like the, the, the channels example was like, this is hard because concurrency is hard. And I so once saying. you get into channels, right? Um, so it's it's different from that. I, I haven't compared both because like I said, I haven't really done any <laughs> Go programming to speak of. But like I'm guessing that when you get to the concurrency stuff, actually that turns out to be easier comparatively in the pure functional language compared to in an imperative language because that kind of generally tends to be true. Uh, like once you've already learned all these techniques, they they and like everything's immutable and so forth. There's a certain category of problems you don't have to worry about. But certainly, there's still plenty of stuff you do have to think about. So like, it's not like concurrency. It's like, oh, now concurrency is a walk in the park. It's a solved problem. Done. Everybody, you know, let's go go home. But I I think certain things you would not have to worry about as much, especially around like, you know, mutation and, and like race conditions around that and stuff. Yeah. So, okay. I, I think I get where you're going with this. And like, if the assertion is functional programming makes concurrency even easier than channels does, I would, I would immediately agree. Uh, <laughs> but usually <laughs> I mean, that's not just because, yeah, but usually I like, I don't think it's actually like recursion in particular that does it. It's, it's like the immutability guarantees and stuff, right? Totally. And I have, you know, I have a functional programming course on boot dev that I'm sure would make your eyes like roll back into your head uh, (laughs) because I do my absolute best. Uh, I love this course. I do my absolute best to teach the tenets of functional programming in a language that is not functional, right? In Python. And the idea is like, I want people that are going through our backend developer learning path to like get exposure to different programming paradigms and I have a personal belief that there are certain things in functional programming that like whether or not you're working in a functional language, you really should be striving for like immutability and pure functions. And 
those get you a lot of the way there. So as a Go developer, if you know, you're really going to shoot yourself in the foot if you're fast and loose with state. But mixing a lot of the functional concepts with channels it gets to be a lot better. And I will just say, if you're used to doing concurrent programming in a language where you're like doing a lot of uh, work with mutexes, right? You're trying to synchronize data in that way. It does take a lot of like mindset shift to work with channels because you're thinking much more about the communication between, you know, go routines or threads or what have you, and less about the memory synchronization. And, and that paradigm shift, I, I would argue is very similar to the one of like, you know, you're going from an imperative style of programming to a functional one. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm actually really curious. I've, I've never, I've never tried this out on anyone, but I'm, I'm curious to see what you think of it. So I've been trying to think of different ways to explain to someone who hasn't like personally used it. Cause like when I started using Elm and Elm's like purely functional, no side effects, you know, yada, yada. I was like, this is great. And I can't seem to explain why it's great to someone who hasn't tried it. Like, I love this and I want to keep doing this, but I don't know how to convey what I like about it so much. I'm just like, it's the, the, the pure functions and they got the properties and guarantees. And people are like, it sounds cool. I mean, like, so I, I came up with something and this is still kind of a work in progress, but I'm kind of curious to see what, what you think of it. As somebody who's like, you know, done functional style, but not, I'm assuming you haven't used like a pure functional language in anger, like Elm or Haskell. Or no, okay, not so in cool. anger. Yeah, just in just so, in play. <laughs> so this is like the, the way that I think of like why Rock is purely functional and not just like, you know, a language that supports imperative well and also supports functional style, which I think is it like OCaml functional or is it like Haskell functional? Like, does it have a lot of escape hatches or like not so many? Not so many, for sure. Fewer escape hatches than Haskell, but but also unlike Fewer Haskell. Fewer than Haskell? Yeah, Haskell has unsafe wow, performance. So a lot fewer than OCaml. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Like, there's okay. no, there's no like first class. Like, I mean, OCaml has first class like mutation, right? You can just like say, hey, this is mutable. Rock doesn't have that. Elm doesn't have that. Also, uh, unlike Haskell, so Haskell does have this like ultimate escape hatch of unsafe perform IO, which is just like do these side effects or like CFFI. It's like call call this C function in the middle of your, uh, you know, whatever. Um, both Rock and Elm do not have either of those. It's just like, um, but also like. Haskell has laziness, which is a whole separate category of mindset shift, and Rock and Elm don't have that either. It's it's like strictly evaluated, like like you would expect. You know, this thing runs and this thing runs. Um, okay, so this is the way I like to think about, uh, or, or I'm trying to <laughs> try out thinking about uh, explaining like how how you end up with a purely functional language and why you might want that. So let's imagine I'm going to use Node.js here. I don't actually know. Does Go have like an async await concept or I don't think it does, right? It does not. We use Go routines okay. for everything. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's, a lot of languages have async await now. Yeah. So let's go with that. Um, sure. So let's say you're in Node.js land. You've got async and you've got await. Well, one of the downsides of having async await and also synchronous ways to do things is that every IO operation gets duplicated. Like you have read from a file synchronously and then you have the async version of that. And then this also sort of propagates into the library ecosystem where it's like if your library, you know, you, you can support one, you can support both. So at a baseline, let's say, okay, like to me, the nice thing about purely functional programming is subtraction. It's like taking things away and then getting benefits from taking things away and simplifying things. So this is our first simplification is like, okay, you have the synchronous way and you have the async away. Let's just do everything async. We're not going to have any synchronous IO at all in the language. It's like every single IO primitive is async. Okay. So once we've done that, um, now we can say, all right, we've got async IO, all IO is asynchronous. Does that mean that any function that is not async, that is synchronous, is it pure? Well, almost, because 
We know that like any function that is not doing any IO, we know that if you call it, it's not going to do any IO side effects, but we don't know that it's always going to give back the same answer. Like we're, we're kind of close to having like all non-async functions are. are do you still functions. have like global variables or anything like this? Or let's assume we don't have those either. Also, okay, also good, good point. Because I, I think Go does have global variables, right? Go yeah, you order. can like and like you could you get closures and like there's ways to do you know mutations right. and stuff. But yeah, yeah. So so let's let's see if we can uh, subtract our way into into more like properties okay. that we want. So so one example of. Um, something that is not async, but generally does rely on some form of IO behind the scenes, even though people don't think of it this way, is random number generation. So usually if you call a function that's like, give me a random number, first of all, that's certainly not a pure function because you call it and it, it gives you a different answer. Usually that, that's kind of IO. Like, oh, well, so of. not only does it go to the OS, <laughs> but usually it's it's doing something at some point, it's either reading from like a global variable that's storing like the random number seed and then it's changing that seed every time. Or it might even be going all the way and just saying, like, give me the current system time and I'm going to use that as my seed. So, all right. So let's, 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 for the sake of argument, say that even though it might sound weird, let's make random number generation also be a form of IO. So we're going to have that be async rather than sync. Okay. Might sound, might sound kind of weird, I admit. And random number generation in a purely functional language, that's one of the things that people are always like, wait, why is this lumped in the same category as IO? Like, that's why, because <laughs> it's not a pure function. Um, Okay, so with that aside, so we've got all of the IO and also random numbers out of the way. And so now we can look at any given function. And if that function is async, we know that it's potentially doing IO and there's, you know, like purity stuff is not happening there. But if it doesn't have async, then we know that no IO is happening for sure. Because if it, if it were, then it would have to become, have become async. All right, so that's cool. Let's, let's see what else we can get out of this. So um, you mentioned uh, closures. So closures can like close over things that are mutable. Let's say we get rid of that. In fact, let's say we get rid of mutation altogether. And we just say that like any function has to, when you call it, it cannot mutate any of its arguments. We can say like, you, maybe you can do mutation inside, like in rock, we don't allow that again, for simplicity reasons. But let's say you're just not allowed to mutate any of your arguments. Okay. If you're not allowed to mutate any of your arguments, and we've made it so that all of the impure functions in, in the standard library um, are all async. Well, now anytime I call a function that's not async with the same arguments, it's got to be giving me the same return value every time because there's nothing else that it can really do. If you can't, if there's no global variables, you can't read from that sort of like global state. Um, if there's no way that it could be mutating any of its arguments, then it can't have that side effect. It can't be doing IO for side effects. It can't be doing random numbers for like getting a different answer every time. You're kind of down to like now every function in the language that's not async has all the nice properties of pure functions. And it's not just a suggestion. It's a, it's a guarantee. It's like I can just look at that in the same way if I, you know, if I look at a function, I'm like this type signature says it takes a string. I can just look at it and be like, is it async? If not, then it's definitely a pure function, which means, for example, I can cache it for sure. It's definitely safe to memoize like 100% chance. Um, like all of these nice properties that, that 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 are the types of things that made you say, you know, I default to pure functions, like, you know, yeah, yeah. If, uh, if, if I can. Is there a third um, class of of impure function? Like, I'm that's what I'm trying to think of. It's like, is it all just IO and like mutating something outside of your scope? Is that it? And, and like global, and global global variables. Yeah. So, so if like you don't have something global outside variables. of your scope, right? Like, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to write well, also reading from them. So like if you have some other way of setting globals, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
But like, yeah, yeah mutating so or reading, just accessing anything out that wasn't passed in explicitly, right? Right. And now, granted, if you're if you're going to have everything be immutable, then also like if you're a function that closes over stuff, that also needs to be immutable. Like, if you can't have like you're not a pure function anymore if you close over something that somebody else could mutate, right? It's got to be like whatever you close over has to be immutable. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of it. And then I guess the last piece of the puzzle is that like in a purely functional language, like async works a certain way like behind the scenes but it kind of doesn't matter it's, it's usually not called async it's like usually called something else but whatever um but that's kind of it like when when you put it that way I, my hope is that it sort of conveys that like this isn't that different in terms of like what you're used to you would just need to learn certain techniques for like well usually the technique i would use here is like i would pass an immutable pointer to this thing or whatever and then mutate it I can't do that here, but there's like, I can think of another way to do that. Um, that's my hope at any rate. So that's, that's the idea. I'm curious what you think of all that. So I love the idea of not doing things two different ways. <laughs> like I love the idea, <laughs> right. right. Of like, okay, we have a bunch of asynchronous stuff. And if you want to do it synchronously, just await it. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like that's the way I, I, so I'm fully on board with that idea. Cool. Um, in Go, it's 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 kind of similar in that like there's only one way to do the thing, but it's synchronous by default. And if you want right. to make it asynchronous, you like do it in a Go routine, right? Yeah. So the same idea, but the opposite default, right. Um, right. which is like fine, I think. Um, the interesting, the, the more like co- controversial hot take that I could I could see the comments flooding in on Hacker News already, um, <laughs> it, it is the idea that like we're going to bundle the idea of purity like function purity and io um and like first of all like what do you call that keyword do you call it async or do you do you call it io to be more explicit um and then like you have to await io operations um and then everything else that like if it's not io we just say it has to be pure um that's like my first my first question would be around like what we what what you're you're actually planning on naming the thing Um, and then, well, let's start there. Like, w- w- what do you think about that? Are, are, do you think async is a good keyword for that sort of idea? Honestly, I think it's fine. I mean, so um, in Rock, we we don't call it async, but we do use the term await. So actually, if you go to rocklang.org uh, or rock-lang.org, R-O-C, I should, I should mention for people <laughs> who don't know how it's spelled. Um, and you scroll down near the end. So the very end is like sponsors, but right above that, there's kind of a bigger code example. And... You, it's just it's an example of doing IO and rock. And what you see is that at the end of the lines that are doing IO, you see task.await rather than like, and we do it kind of postfix style, just as a stylistic thing. You could also put it in front if you want, but for various reasons, the community's kind of settled on putting it at the end, like Rust does. But yeah, I mean, there is like if you were to explain like what is async await doing in let's say Node.js versus what is await doing in Rock, they are doing different things, but conceptually they have kind of the same benefit. And like structurally in terms of like if you want to make your thing do I/O, now you need to like you know in the in the spirit of like what color is your function, you need to kind of change the color of the function to be like this is an I/O one now. In Rock, that it doesn't there isn't a separate language keyword for async but it just changes the return type so we we have this thing called task which is kind of like a promise uh in javascript um except that it has it models both the success and the error case so like it's a it's kind of like a promise but with two type variables and then the other uh relevant detail is that that's kind of like how we do our async await and like in javascript when you instantiate a promise like it immediately runs the io synchronously 
Whereas in rock, it's it's more like async await where you're like, okay, well, I'm going to sort of build up this chain of tasks that are uh, a description of all the IO I want to do and like what happens in between them. And then the runtime will actually like, you know, do that and potentially interleave things concurrently and whatever, you know, whatever fanciness it wants to do to make it so the IO is non-blocking. But, but I mean, structurally, your code ends up looking like, I would say, basically the same thing as async await. It's just like it's the types are a little different. Yeah. So, so I have a couple questions. How does does Rock handle concurrency? Like, how does that work? Uh, short answer is yes, but it's not really implemented yet without going down a huge rabbit hole on this. Um, so we have this concept in Rock of platforms and applications, which I think is is the most novel thing about the language. So what that means is essentially every Rock application has to pick a platform to build on. And platforms are, are a user space thing. It's not like built into the language. Um, so anyone can build a Rock platform the same way as anyone can build a Rock application. A platform, I guess a way to think of it is actually, I'm going to use a term I've heard you use on backend banter, which is your description of a framework is, I think actually really fits really nicely with how Rock platforms are typically used. It's not the only way to use them, but you described a framework as like, your conception of a framework is, it's something where you're sort of embedding your code into it rather than like a library where you're kind of adding it to your code and your code is kind of the main driver. So a Rock platform is the driver. And it's also, it's sort of a, platforms are, have two parts. One is the public facing Rock API, which if you're building your application, that's what you access and that's what you use, that's what you see. And then there's an under the hood piece that's written in a lower level language like Rust or C++ or, or Zig or whatever. and the lower level part sort of implements all of your IO primitives and also kind of is the runtime. So ultimately, Rock's concurrency story kind of comes down to what you end up hand, like what it, what the platform ends up seeing is this sort of state machine of like asynchronous stuff where it's like, hey, the application author said they want to run this like file read operation. And then here's a callback when it's done that, that tells you what's going to happen next. And then that's going to run and then that's going to do give you back another state in the state machine that says like, okay, then afterwards they want to do this IO operation. Okay, tell me the answer, tell, tell the callback the answer and then and so forth. So what that means is that the answer to like, how does concurrency work in Rock is that it's sort of platform defined. So if you have a platform that, um, like for example, we have a, a web server called Basic Web Server. Uh, it's a platform that uses Rust's Tokyo for all of its like, you know, under the hood stuff. So if you're doing that, Again, this is not like totally implemented yet, but the the design that we're imp- working towards implementing is that essentially you can just, uh, you know, as the platform author say, cool, we're going to use Tokyo's concurrency system and, you know, w- we'll just take care of executing this state machine. But on the other hand, uh, you could also have like a platform pe- for being like, hey, I want to use Rock in this like existing Go project, for example. You could do the same thing. Go as like CFFI, right? I, <laughs> I believe. Are you talking about like C syscalls in Go? Like in, in a Go program, there's some way that you can call out to a C function. I'm guessing, maybe not. There is, but we don't we do not do that. We okay, do okay, that. fair enough. So <laughs> there's there's this uh, like, I guess it's kind of homage to the Zen of Python written by Rob Pike. It's called the, uh, the Go Proverbs. And one of the Go Proverbs is C Go is not Go. So the minute you add C Go to your project, we kind of like treat that as like, oh, like you're not really writing Go. So like there will be packages okay. that are like this uses C Go, but like here's the pure Go version of it. And we we tend to prefer. Ah, okay. So like it can be done, but like you don't do it usually if you can avoid it. 
Okay, that's that's cool to know. I, I didn't know about that. Anyway, so if you wanted to use Rock in your existing Go application, then you could hook into it and use Go's concurrency system to drive, you know, your Rock yeah. application's concurrency. Got it. Okay, very cool. So one last question I have about this, because it sounds really interesting to me, and I, I like the idea of, like, if you can bundle IO and Purity together, that does seem to simplify a lot of things. Is there no way to write an impure function in Rock that would of of course be synchronous uh there how should i put this if someone was like i will give you a trillion dollars if you can do this and i and i'm able to write the platform code then there's a way to like cheat and do it because one of the things that the platform is responsible for is memory management so the platform gets like whenever the application's like i want to allocate some memory on the heap the way that it does that is it says hey platform i want to allocate some memory on the heap and the platform provides a function that does that if you wanted to you could make your platform say like i'm not only going to allocate some memory on the heap but when like behind the scenes but i'm going to run some arbitrary io this sounds like a terrible idea we can like do the thing academics do and just like hand wave and say well then you're breaking protocol and like we don't care yeah like like Like, we can define our way out of this problem (laughs) yes like it's explicitly not something you're supposed to do and like i i can't promise what's going to happen when the optimizer gets involved like your io may may run or not it's kind of a little bit of io roulette at that point Um, because the optimizer is just like i assume that this is just allocating memory on the heap and so i'm free to treat it semantically like that so maybe like it's at a language things. level yeah. is the in, at a language level is the intention that like you will not be allowed to like you'll fail to compile or, or whatever um yeah so, if you introduce impurity into the so the one other example of this um so it's it is technically a form of io so we do have a first class debug keyboard uh, keyword that's for like print line debugging and it's basically just like you can just say debug anywhere in your function and it's going to also it's platform defined. So most of the time that's going to be right to standard error. But then like if you're building uh, for like Node.js, for example, it's like a console.log or if you're uh, like running the browser also like in WebAssembly, it can be like a console.log or, or whatever. If you have a native GUI. Pesky console being IO, man. It's, uh... Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is that um, debug is, again, because it's it's so like useful for debugging and also because although it is definitely a side effect. It, it has really uh, convenient semantics so that the optimizer can kind of like work around it in a lot of cases. And also like, you know that at least it's not affecting other functions. And like, again, if you really wanted to, you could probably hack something in where you're like, well, I know that my platform is writing this to standard error and I can listen in on standard error. And then like, you know, there's probably horrible hacks you could do, you know, around that. But it it's is one of those things impurity where- impurity you're going to get. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but but I mean to to answer the spirit of your question, like no, there's there's no way to be like unsafe perform IO just like suddenly go and do this IO operation. And this is something that we rely on very much. It's it's not like this is just for like moral reasons or whatever. It's like we want the optimizer to be able to combine things together because it knows that they're pure. Well, I'm actually curious about the inverse of that just because like my concern was, okay, if you're going to bundle the idea of function purity and maybe this is just a dumb question because I don't work in purely functional languages. And so like it's implicitly implied in the fact <laughs> that rock is extremely functional, but like I just want to confirm there's no way to do like synchronous non IO impure stuff. Right. Because that would be like the edge case in my mind of like, I'm going to use the await keyword to like do some weird impure thing that's actually not even IO. It's just impure. So like people would start oh. using the keyword to like achieve impurity rather than to do IO. Great question. Yeah. So I guess the way that I would say it is if you want to do an operation 
that could be expressed as a synchronous impure function, it's going to have to be treated as IO. It, it, like you, you have to await it. So actually an example of this would be one of the things that a platform author can offer if they want to is they can say, hey, I want to like dynamically load a C library and like expose some functions to you from that. They can totally do that, but the only way in the language that they can offer that is by treating every single one of those function calls as IO. So even if it's like, this is just a math function, it just like does arithmetic, that's it. doesn't matter. It still has to be treated as IO because it's it's coming from C. You don't Calling like, a C function. Yeah, yeah, okay. So like all of those have to be treated as IO or, or, or like lumped okay. into the same bucket as IO. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because like uh, just to like, uh, you know, give the comparison in Go, like I said, in Go, we we try to avoid C Go as much as possible. It's rare that you'll use it. And when you don't use it, there's like a binary switch of like, I'm a pure Go application or a C Go application. And when you're a pure Go application, everything is statically compiled, which gives you a lot of guarantees, right? You're not dynamically loading any any C code or any, no dynamic linking going on, right? right. So yeah, yeah, Rocket, I mean, that's one of several things that I find like inspirational about Go is that people aren't really surprised when, you know, Rust or C++ is like, hey, we made a static, you know, binary that you can just like ship. That's like kind of what they do. But Go is the only, I guess Go and OCaml are maybe, um, all right, in Haskell, fine. But like the, there aren't a lot of modern languages that are just sort of like, hey, what I output is just like a self-contained executable that's like statically linked and like you don't need to have anything else in your system. Just like you can SCP that up to your server and run it, you're done. Like in Rock, we do that too, or, or at least like we we are almost there, but like we there's like one dynamic dependency that's really annoying to remove, which like we want to remove, but it's like, it's yeah, whatever, it's fine. It takes time sometimes. It's an annoying engineering problem, but it's not a design problem. So that's an example of something I think Go does really well, but also just like in general, the tooling. I actually was wondering, does Go do um, any kind of like hot code loading? Like if you've got your Go server running locally and you make changes, is there a way that that can just get like update the running server or is that not a thing or I don't know how that works. So in my opinion, this is like one of Go's biggest weaknesses when it comes to like um, front end web application development. And that's why I say that like Go has really taken off on the back end side of the stack, APIs dealing with raw data. And there is actually an edge case. Go is heavily used for, there's this project called Hugo for like statically generating websites. And that, that also yeah. is, is pretty awesome. But hot reloading in Go, there is not a solution at all. There uh-huh. is live reloading. I, I don't know. Are you familiar with like the distinction between those terms? No. Um, or I'll just explain it for the audience anyways. Sure. Um, yeah. Basically, live reloading is we're going to watch your file system. When you make a change to a file, we're going to recompile, rebuild, and rerun the app. So it's just okay. like saving you the manual step of going back to your command line and like rerunning the thing. Sure. Um, hot reloading is like we're going to keep a snapshot of your program's state and just change out the little bit that you changed. Right. Right. So you can imagine like a view or a React uh, server with hot module reloading. It's like we're just going to reload that one module that you changed. And I'm currently building a website using HTMX and Go. And this is like one of the biggest uh, kind of DevX issues, in my opinion, with the whole situation is like I'm doing live reloading. But that means like my whole startup process, which is like connects to the database and make sure that certain dependencies (laughs) are in place, has to restart in order for my server to restart. Whereas, you know, in a JavaScript development server, I'd be just getting an instant, you know, module reload. 
this actually came up for exactly the same reason is that somebody's been trying out rock and htmx and they were like yeah it's really annoying that like every time i make a change to the generated html i have to restart the whole server reconnect to the database and everything and uh i just realized this but i'd always wanted to do hot code loading in rock but i thought it was going to be harder than it actually turns out to be but as far as i can tell at least in theory it's actually very straightforward because the application code is essentially can be just bundled into like a C library and then the platform can kind of like dynamically load that and unload that on the fly. What's cool about that is because of all the guarantees I just mentioned, like basically when when the platform calls a rock function and it's always the platform calling it, like the platform's the driver, it's always like rock basically compiles down to a C library is kind of one way to think of it. It's like, okay, I'm going to call this function. This rock function is guaranteed not to access any globals. I don't even know what those are. It's guaranteed to not have any sort of like you know, persistent state per se. And at the end of the day, what happens when I, when I call this thing is it's going to just, you know, run some code and then give me back this little like state machine thing to interpret. So swapping that on the fly should in theory be totally fine. Like there, there, as long as the server platform is aware of sort of like, you know, what, what's the, what are the in-flight reflect requests that I'm handling, which for local development, maybe it doesn't matter, but if you want to do this in production, cause it would work there too, then you do need to kind of make sure that you don't like swap it out. Well, you need to make sure that you finish up all the old ones before you like unload the library. Um, so you're saying like all the stateful IO stuff, like maybe a, a, an open database connection that like lives elsewhere and you're just swapping out that pure, pure function part. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so to the extent that like, the stuff that needs to be stateful, that needs to be remembered in a hot load versus a live load, all that stuff's on the platform side. So if you're just swapping out the application, like it doesn't need to redo any of that. So this is like a, you know, very much just started kind of discussing this, but it seems like in theory that should be hopefully really straightforward. I think this is a great example of like functional language makes thing easier because, you know, impurity and pure functions like this is why functional programming is cool, right? This is why <laughs> yeah. it's hard in Go is because there is no like natural separation between here's where all of my persistent state is going to live. And that's the thing I don't want to reload. I just want to reload. Like in Go, I can imagine, you know, maybe someone will build a tool that somehow will like swap out, swap out all your handler functions, but like leave the rest of like the main package somehow, you know, stateful. Yeah, so I, I think that's that's a really interesting example of how you might think like, well, I'm subtracting all these things and therefore I'm just like, I'm, I'm simplifying my life, but I'm also making it harder because there's certain things that are just like a recursion being a great example of this. It's like, it's just easier to express in a while loop. However, the properties that you get make certain things that are normally really hard a lot easier. And that's, I think if I had to summarize like why I subjectively like functional programming, I think it's that even if it does make some of the easy things harder, it makes the harder things a lot easier. And as I've gotten further in my career, that's the thing I value more is making the hard things easier rather than the easy things, which are still easy, like a little bit less easy, you know? My hot take is that this is why this is why academics love functional programming is because like as an academic, almost by definition, you're just like trying to do interesting, hard things. And so using a functional programming language, like you said, makes a lot of those things easier to reason about and why in the industry there's been such a resistance to like purely functional stuff in general, just because for the most part in the industry, we're trying to do easy things. I mean, I actually think a lot of it honestly is, is comes down to, I mean, I have a lot of, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this question about like, 
this is so great now that I tried it. Why isn't everybody doing this? And like, 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 no, really, why? And so I've got a lot of like theories and I gave this talk called why isn't functional programming the norm, which is now like over a million views on YouTube, which well, is that's like, awesome. That talk is more about like the answering the historical question of like, you know, because functional programming is like a pretty old idea. So like, why are the top, it ends up being a talk mostly about like, why are the languages that are currently popular, popular? And is it because they have like, you know, like, oh, it was a better paradigm or whatever. Spoiler, I don't think so. But uh, I don't think it's, I don't, not only do I not think so, because I don't think OO is great, but also because historically, I don't think that's supportable as a, as a explanation. But uh, regardless, I think part of the reason though, is, is also that like where functional programming has sort of gotten its start is in academia. And a lot of the things that academics like about it don't resonate with people working in industry. Like, uh, you know, you hear a lot of like very strong, like mathematical influence and you hear about like, oh, you have like these, um, you know, equational reasoning and all of these like, you know, mathematical properties and people in industry are like, cool, I need to ship this thing on Friday. So like, can you help me with that? (laughs) You know? And they're like, well, surely equational reasoning will help you ship on Friday. Like, yeah, okay. All right. Thank you. You know, like, and so, so a lot of it is like, so you have a this class is, to teach or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like a lot of this is why I, I've been trying to like figure out ways to articulate what I like about my experience in a way that like can help somebody else who hasn't like actually tried it out, understand what I like about it. Because before I'd actually tried it, all I had were these sort of like this soup of like buzzwords and stuff. And I was like, maybe those are cool. And like, I, Fortunately for me, I had a friend who finally convinced me. He's like, you should just try it and like try it, try one of these languages, which brings me to the second problem, which is that in a lot of cases, the tooling around these languages is just, I mean, I, I think of Go as a language that is like top tier in terms of tooling, like among oh, yeah. languages, it's like it, it ships with all this great stuff out the box. You mentioned like profiling, like a lot of things that are really annoying to set up or, or like really difficult and time consuming to set up other languages goes like yeah we just ship with a good one of those so you don't need to go hunting around for something that's maybe not going to integrate right right but i i think that historically a lot of functional languages have been on the other side of that spectrum where it's like you you get the experience that you get out the box and like trying to get out up and running and trying to get tooling around that has just like been behind most imperative languages or at least like popular ones and that's been another barrier like on top of the like oh yeah the third thing would be teaching i think the teaching style historically i've been trying to change that like i i now built up a lot of reps with like teaching (laughs) functional programming yeah but like i think the way that it's been taught historically has also been pretty unsuccessful and so i kind kind of like that that combination of things it's like the pitch doesn't resonate and if you actually try it out you're going to run into a lot of tooling sharp edges or lack of tooling sharp edges or, or tooling you know being kind of a bumpy ride and on top of that the way that it's going to be taught to you is probably not going to be a good way for you to learn. If all three of those things are true, which I believe they are, then it's not surprising me that a lot of people would bounce off of it or or not try it in the first place or or things like that. So I don't think, I mean, I've heard people say like, oh, like OCaml's great, Elm's great, Haskell's great, whatever. Like everybody should be using these and it's a mystery why it's not. I don't think it's that mysterious. I think it's in a lot of cases because like there are good reasons that people haven't been like trying it or, or have tried it and bounced off of it. And it's not just like, oh, everybody's just a big dummy because they're not using the enlightened thing that I am. I don't think that's the explanation. That sounds very reasonable to me. I, I'm going to go listen to that talk. Um, I honestly wonder if that's been just been kind of coincidental in the sense that like 
the people that happen to be interested in functional programming happen to be more interested in designing the language than building a bunch of tooling for actually using the language. Well, like, I don't have any evidence to back that up, but I, I could see it being the case. I mean, so so like I would say um, like Clojure and Elixir, I think are are different examples of that. So yeah, Clojure and Elixir, yeah. first of all, they get to build because they're sort of hosted languages is, is what Rich Hickey calls it. Um, it's like Clojure's hosted on the JVM, so it gets to inherit a lot of good Java tooling, and then Clojure brings some additional Clojure-specific tooling on top of that. But like, um, and, and you know, Elixir, same thing with like getting a lot of tooling from Erlang and, and then also adding its own. And I think today, people like um, OCaml's a you know, pretty old language at this point. It's from the 1990s. And like, there's been a lot of tooling built up over time. So I think the story for OCaml today is actually different around tooling than it was you know, 10, 15 years ago. And because right. of that, people who are trying out OCaml today are less likely to bounce off than they would have been if they tried it 10, 15 years ago. And I think that's part of the explanation for why functional programming languages are getting proportionately more popular than they used to be, even if they're still, you know, far from mainstream. Yeah. But uh, I think like Elm is another good example of like, you know, Elm ships with like good packaging out the box and there's like one formatter that everyone uses and, and stuff like that. Haskell has a problem of, unfortunately, like a really serious fragmentation problem where there's <laughs> there's like these like switches you can put at the middle of your files that turn on and off certain language features as, as kind of like the most extreme example of this. And that has nothing to do with functional programming. It's just like Haskell's a research language. That's where it came from. And so yeah. like, different authors of different papers wanted different things to be enabled, you know, to for their paper. But now it's like as an ecosystem, again, there's a lot of like it's it's kind of a similar problem that the JavaScript ecosystem has where it's like, there's a million options. Which one should you pick? Well, here, have a seat. I'm gonna walk you through all the different, you know, and I was like, oh no, I just <laughs> I just just tell me how to get started, please. You know. Uh, but that's not really related to functional programming. That's kind of a Haskell specific thing. At any rate, so I I, I think like as functional programming gets hopefully better at all three of those things that around like teaching and also like explaining why you might like it if you got into it and also the tooling getting better. I think it's likely to get hopefully more and more mainstream as time progresses, which has been the trend. And, you know, eventually, hopefully there'll become some point where I'm not saying this is a niche thing, but I actually like, oh, now, now it's a small mainstream thing. Like, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I mentioned, we have this functional programming course in our curriculum. One of the things about boot dev is like, we're trying to be this really rigorous way to learn backend development. So it's kind of like contrast nice. that with like the 12 week boot camp, right? Sure. Yeah. Throwing in a bunch of CS stuff like algorithms, data structures, and, and I'm a strong believer that you really should have an understanding of both object oriented programming and functional programming just to give you like some perspective, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the functional programming is much harder to teach <laughs> than the object oriented programming and not but not just because I'm doing it in Python which isn't a functional language but like the concepts are inherently harder to teach. I, we've spent a lot of time tr like kind of softening the sharp edges on that course and I'm really interested in in your thoughts on how functional programming could be taught better. It, maybe I need to get you on the back end banter podcast to talk about that. Uh, oh yeah, love because to. Because I want to make some improvements in that area. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, and I, and I spent a lot of time doing it. Like I, I have clocked more than a hundred hours physically standing in front of different classes of people teaching them Elm for the first time, which is a awesome. very functional language. Um, yeah, I have like a front end master's course on uh, on intro to Elm and also advanced Elm. Spent a lot of time doing that, and like I have a, a lot of a lot of thoughts on it. <laughs> but yes, cool, uh, yeah. maybe we should do that because your podcast is also cool. People should check out Backend Banter if they are interested in Backend Banter. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks so much for uh, for taking the time. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. Yeah, like you said, uh, 
if you're interested in backend development, particularly like Python and Go, then check out Backend Banter. Um, if you want to see Boot Dev, it's you know gamified platform for learning backend development, kind of this rigorous uh, training program. Uh, the domain name is the same as the name. It's just boot.dev. So check that there out. There you too. go. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Richard. 